0: Hi, Roy. Hi, Leo. Hi, everyone. You reach Startup for Startup, the podcast on which we openly share knowledge, experience and actionable insights among startups. Today's episode is about six billion dollars. Sounds provocative, but this is the size of the fund managed by one of our investors, Insight Capital Partners. When talking about investors, the usual startup perspective is to think about how to raise money. Today we are going to flip sides and try to understand better the investor point of view. What challenges do they encounter? What are their own KPIs and how do they define success? And this isn't just a thought experiment. We strongly believe that understanding how investors think about their own businesses can be very insightful to every startup and every founder in a fundraising process and in general. So, today's guest is Jeff Horing, co founder and managing director at Insight Venture Partners since 1995. Hi, Jeff.
1: Hi, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure.
0: Not only is is one of the leading venture capital and private equity firms, um, they've taken, you've taken a special interest in Israel, uh, if that's correct.
1: That is absolutely correct.
0: And I just want to mention the, the few investments you've made in Israel to small companies such as Wix and WalkMe and Sisense and Checkmarks, JFrog, SpotiM and JoyTunes, and, of course, Monday.com.
1: Most importantly.
0: Most importantly, which is why we're here today. So, Jeff... <laughs> Six billion dollars. How do you even start thinking about it?
1: Uh, you know, we don't think about the amount. We think about the opportunities. And I think when we look at our history, it's really about finding companies that we love, which are mostly software companies that are growing and doing interesting things. And from that, we find a lot of opportunities. And the world is a big place. If you look at the world of software, it's grown by a factor of probably 20 since I first started in 1995, maybe more. Uh, and you know the opportunities continue to mount um, considerably. So I think for us, I know that sounds crazy, but six billion is not even a challenging number for opportunities out there. Uh, so software represents a hundred billion probably or more invested capital a year, maybe 200 billion a year. I think it's you know, certainly uh, you know, reasonable to look for uh, lots of deals.
0: So how do you even raise this amount of money?
1: Between funds typically are not so obvious that we have to give them at least some confidence that what we're doing is successful. And uh, I think, you know, we raise money largely from where the money is, which is savings accounts. People save money in lots of ways. Most save it in, uh, they could save it in pension plans. It could be a state pension plan. It could be a public pension plan. Uh, Other people save money through endowments and foundations. Um, So those big, pools of savings is really where we find most of our capital. You know, today we have very, very wealthy people who've got lots of savings, too. Uh, So they look like what years ago were institutions. Um, And we address all those uh, individual uh, markets, really, for money
2: for me it was uh, after uh inside invested in us we went uh, to insight kind of meet the team and it was amazing to me to to find that uh, your lps which is the investors of of uh, the investors have a minimum check size because you can't really manage all those uh, h- how many investors do you need like to raise six billion
1: so the, the, there's a big range as you might imagine and some people invest as little as 10 million dollars there's tend to be relationships we've had for a long time. Every now and then we just have sort of people who are anxious to put money with us and they require very little help to make that decision. Uh, I think the average investment size for one of my investors is somewhere between 50 and 100 million dollars. And we probably just
0: to put in perspective, this is like the average size of a fund in Israel. Um, That's true.
1: Well, actually, you know, the strange thing about raising money is it can get a little bit easier as you get bigger because the investors who have lots and lots of money think about sovereign wealth funds like singapore or you know china uh they can't put money to work in 20 million million dollar increments it doesn't matter to the amount of money that they manage which could be 200 300 400 billion dollars and so then when they look for technology opportunities there's a very finite universe of people who could except the check sizes that Mm -hmm. they look to deploy. So in fact, it's sometimes harder for smaller funds who have lots of competition for $10 million checks because there's lots of alternatives for those $10 million checks than it is for us where we have the benefit of at least being a very small universe of technology, private equity investors, uh, raising larger sums of money.
0: Right, but... If we go back to doing some math, you have to return, what, 3x on your fund?
1: 3x would be spectacular, yes, for my LPs. We have been able to manage that over the last decade.
2: So that's very different than, than uh, like uh, let's say, uh, round A typical investors that expect to do sometimes uh, 10x. So, you know, you want to invest in a startup, you, you see a 10x. Not only uh, that,
0: the dynamics are right. that you have one good or two really great investments <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that it's return the
2: it's whole like the model. So, so fund. You, you have a different model. So we, we do have a lot
1: of 10xs. I'm probably sitting in the room with one right now. It's a very different business model. I think the earlier stage investors are obviously betting mostly on people and to some extent products. We're betting on markets, product market fit, because we have usually data to sort of support the product market fit, and then still people, because the people really are what give you the 10x versus the 3x return. But we do have a much higher batting average, right? So we'll lose less than 5% of our capital in a given fund.
0: Only. So you
1: don't
2: write off investments?
1: Not even. the right. We'll just lose 5%. So our write-offs, 100% write-offs, are probably less than 1% of our funds. It's rare for us to lose How many
0: companies? Let's just put it into perspective.
1: Our funds probably look somewhat similar to a – Medium size early stage funds. So we'll have 40 companies now. We're probably having a little bit more because we're doing some smaller uh, investments as well to get involved with companies earlier so that we can follow them through their life. Um, so
0: you'll end up losing two of them? That's.
1: Well, that's dollar amounts, right? So we right. have some checks that are $300 million. Right. We're never, hopefully, never going to lose those checks. And then we have other checks that are 15 to $20 million, which mm-hmm. we know we're taking risk with. And those are the ones that we might lose money on.
2: So that's like a huge difference between companies you're investing. You You know, there's a
1: lot of benefit for us to be investing on the earlier side of a market because we may never see the deal like take Monday.com as a great example. If I didn't put the money into the last round, there's a very good chance I might never have seen that opportunity again. And now I may have a chance to put more money in. I get to obviously benefit from owning the company at an earlier stage. Um, and so, for us, we're just looking for exciting businesses. It's, it's, it's all, for us, it's all about collaborating, and there are definitely different styles out there. So, there are definitely private equity firms that we would put as quasi-competitors that are prescriptive to their companies in some ways because they've, they have more experience than a lot of the management teams at how to optimize cash flow, as an example. Um, and there are probably some VCs that have a much more sort of loud voice at the table about you know, getting what they want you know, in a board meeting. Um, we've taken an approach that we pick our fights carefully and we definitely will express our opinions when we think things are going in a direction that we're not supportive of, but we're not going to, you know, make the board meeting a grindy experience. I remember
2: when we changed the name to Monday. I I don't think we had a lot of uh, supporters uh, in that. It was hard to grasp. But 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 facts speak for facts. So, uh, you know,
1: we we like to believe that we're based on reason and you guys presented a wonderful case uh, as to why that was a positive name. And in the end, even then, China. it was—I I would describe it as a discussion. Yeah, you felt our concerns because it yeah, was—it yeah. was a different strategy. I mean, we just—I I actually in that one I remember well because I'm a horrible marketer, <laughs> so I was sort of relying on all my team who have a slightly better instinct of how to market. But I think in the end, you guys presented a, a compelling set of research that said this is the right decision for us. Uh,
2: yeah, and and we felt like uh, we needed to explain it. You know, like uh, for us, it was a gut decision in the like gut. Like every day, people told us the name is horrible. So it was easy to see that every, anything Something else, was better. Anything else would be better. So that was easy. But uh, it's really important that we need to explain ourselves, like, and, and, and convince and convey what we want to do, especially when the other side, like, we have uh, 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 trust and appreciation. Like, if a- it's like, a, you know if it's someone you, you don't think you appreciate then you you're just doing Fresh something rate. you don't believe in right. but, it's frustrating. but By the way, way, it is and
1: my life is the same my investors have lots of questions about our strategy right they question the fund size they'll question why are you writing $20 million checks to small companies and i find that explaining to them helps me
0: understand think, it yourself yeah
1: i think i i think through I, my instincts i'm confident of, but it's nice to be able to articulate things and then it actually makes the strategy more crystallized so that you can lean in more Mm -hmm. aggressively into that strategy. We were presented with a lot of questions about size and then one of my partners and I were just sitting in the office talking about why is it that we feel differently than our LPs and he finally came up with a compelling thesis that size is good. It's like, why are we running from this? Why are we defending ourselves? Why aren't we offensive? With size, we can hire more people. We can do more things for our companies. We could see more deals. We could institutionalize a lot of things that smaller firms that compete with us can't do. And so by having to explain it to our investors, we were able to actually turn it around and say, wait a second. We can really look at this as a strategy. Not, not only sh- it's not just a problem, ax- it's actually yeah, our it's, strategy. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's our asset. And then okay. all of a sudden it made us realize, well, then we should really be building – the entire business organized around taking advantage of this strength and not defending it as a, as a weakness.
0: But did you really stop for a moment and say, maybe I'm taking the wrong path just because they ask you questions? Or was it like, oh, they're just not getting it right all the way?
1: No, I always knew we were on the right path. I was just like you. <laughs> like you have an instinct that this is right. You feel it because you're in the sort of ground every day. You see, and any entrepreneur has the same thing. You see the decisions that are getting made and you know what's working and why it's a better thing. Uh, but we were having a really hard time explaining it. And still to this day, it's, I mean, it was, here I am, you know, 23 years later, and my LP conference two weeks ago was all about why our size is still an advantage. And I've lost a lot of investors just on that one point.
0: Really? Although you bring results and um, it's just a fascinating thing to hear. <laughs> well, as I
1: said, there's a long lag in our industry between what you do and the results, right? So imagine I raise a fund and. 2015 which was my last big fund and uh takes three years to. how big
0: was it just five billion
1: so pretty close but it took us two and a half to three years to deploy so that's kind of 2000 you guys are in that fund right so that's the fund that you guys are part of so that took two to three years to deploy so now i'm in 2018 and then you know there's some early signals in that fund and this that fund happens to be going exceptionally well at a very early point in its life but you'd imagine three years in with the average investment is less than a year and a half
0: mm-hmm.
1: that there's not a lot of signals to say it's going really well. Right. So if you're now being asked as an investor to give me more money for my next fund and you're looking at my last fund, you're trying to extrapolate from very few data points how well I'm actually doing. And then you go back to the prior fund, you're like, well, that was a little bit smaller. And you're, you know, maybe, so you're,
0: it's not the same maybe dynamics, you haven't, maybe you have, haven't yes. confirmed that right.
1: thesis yet. Right. So every...
0: Is it a fine reasons to...
1: Every fund is a the little question. bit. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's hard. It's a chasing target because each fund gets a little bit bigger and then they keep questioning relative to the last fund. Now, our strategy hasn't changed. So we invest exactly in the same types of companies we've invested in for 25 years. Same size, growing faster because the markets are much bigger. But I'd say, you know, other other than that, it's a very similar strategy to the day I wrote.
0: You know what, it's, what's interesting, Roy? I just thought about it that, Um, Ray and I explained just just a little context. We talked about how we think that startups should reduce risk as they are talking to investors. And it sounds as if you have the same kind of uh, mission with your investors. Always. You're trying to show them that the risk is lessened.
1: Yeah, no, they always, that's what they care about. They they care about, there's a lot of, you guys have the same challenges I have, right? My investors don't really fully grasp what I do, right? I mean, and they can't. I mean, they're looking at, a hundred different versions of me, but each one is very different. We struggle with that on the other side. So when we present our story to prospects, there's a lot of noise Mm -hmm. and prospects. I'd say the number one criteria, a lot of prospects select investors is what else have they done? That looks like me, Mm -hmm. right? That's even though that's not necessarily a great metric, that's probably it. The hardest thing for us to explain is that we have 30 people who truly roll up their sleeves to try and help you run your business. Now, sometimes you don't need that help. um, But, You know, in many cases, it can be helpful, but that's a very different story than saying, Oh, I'll introduce you to my PR agency firm that I like to work with or my number two recruiting firm that I like to work with. Like, those are, I think of as table stakes for any good investor is that they have a network. But it's really beyond the network. What can you do with your experience base to differentiate your story? But it's hard. I mean, we spend every meeting that I meet a new prospect, it's all about.
2: And for me, by the way, it's, uh, and I had a lot of uh, calls of uh, startups you're going to invest in that like consulted with me and it's always more about relationship about like working together about uh, you know a lot of uh, entrepreneurs ask me like uh, uh, how how's Jeff when the shit hits the fan like how I in, run in for the, the hills and yeah <laughs> uh, or like that's what i said so <laughs> and uh, so like how, how is it to work with? So at the end, I think like the the biggest selling point is the is the relationship, is the objective, is the alignment of interest that you want to build the company and not uh, ruin it or or like. Uh, and I always tell them you're very much like uh, uh, only on the upside. Like you you're looking at the upside and trying to to see how the business will succeed and and like. If it fails, it's not something you think about. Like even we never like talked about downside protection and all that stuff. So it's aiming for success. So the one advantage that we have with our size of many things we have is
1: when we write checks into high growth, smaller businesses, we don't care about the downside. Like it just isn't relevant right to our equation. Like the downside is the the dollars I wrote. Right. That's my downside. I can't lose any more than that. And so for us, it really is about helping you guys achieve the upside. Uh, And I think, you know, for a smaller fund, a $25 million check might actually matter. They wrote that to zero. That might actually be a a big blip in their returns. And so I think, you know, we, by the way, SoftBank, you know, we could all look and question that strategy a lot of ways. But when they write a $300 million check, that's like me writing a $20 million check, which is like a $500 million fund writing a $1 million check. So the mentality of risk that they could take at scale is rather staggering mm-hmm. uh, and very few. There is no one else in the world, quite frankly, who could look at the world like they can because of that size fund that they raise. So there is some interesting benefit to the risk profile that you could do. And I think it, it allows us at least for the smaller companies to be really focused on the ones that we think have exciting dynamic upside.
0: Right. But Roy, you said... You said that some people call you and you can tell them how great Insight is and how great Jeff is personally, but this is a very specific situation. Many times founders don't have this luxury of talking to someone they can trust and they can talk to uh, oh, with no bullshit. Can. No?
1: Yeah, no, they could all ask you. Yeah. Do you, you, do? Do? you could what ask any VC for assurance. references.
0: Right, but this or is you when you're engaged. This is in a very specific stage. That's sure. my point. Like oh, When looking sure. around and just trying to guess who to talk to and... Who's better than whom? And, you know, you talked, Jeff, about how you really help and you have 30 people helping. But, I mean, I can tell you that in Israel, founders are not even sure whether helping is a good thing or uh, absolute, not, absolute, right?
1: It's absolutely. And, then we, and we
0: we, can find so many. We, we, we
1: don't. By the way, it's not a recipe for us. So unlike others that we work with that have some resources, we don't say you have to take our help. And, you know, I would say actually you guys are on the lower end of help. Right. But you don't need it. I mean, right. things are going very well.
0: But looking, so you let's just have this exercise of you thinking as a startup, looking at you from the outside, before talking to you, before having a reference call with someone that they can really tell them how great you are, how can you, what do you assess when you're approaching a new fund?
1: If you're just trying to do basic research, I think experience is the most, one of the most important criteria for an entrepreneur. I want to have somebody who actually appreciates the business that I'm in. Because if things do go sideways, that's probably where you really want to understand who understands the whys. And, you know, you may be insecure about that, in which case, by the way, for us, it's a self-selection out. Like if you're worried that we may know, you know, a fair amount about your business and how it operates and you prefer to be dealing with investors that have very little experience just to get the capital, that's that's fine and that may be your choice. (laughs) But I think entrepreneurs who really have, I think, thought it through and really want to build something unique, realize that having smart people that actually get what they're doing around the table is a good thing. And you can look at people's websites for that, right? I mean, it starts with how many companies look and feel like me, how many are in kind of my world, my space, my go-to-market strategy, my sales motion, you know, pick your, you know, ideas of what defines who, who and what you are. And I think so that you could see at least on the websites very easily. You could see the resources on the websites. Some, some people have, Five people, some people have 100 people, Mm -hmm.
2: right? So that gives you a sense of what really is behind those words when you hear the stories. And... and relating to that when you look in the website like generally I get confused like lots of people with the titles that you don't understand who's writing the check and, and those kind of stuff but you don't know even who is a good person to talk with but which is
0: another question I ask by the way it's usually yeah, the
1: top pictures
0: yeah. <laughs> matter
1: and as you get further yeah. down
0: the, although the you'd be surprised at some I
2: know, some I, I also in insight also like I think there is a lot of uh, voice for the people who make the calls and actually make the first contact you listen to them while in other funds well that's actually an interesting
1: point i think the most underestimated thing for a lot of entrepreneurs is how important the young guys are in all these firms i think
0: can you elaborate on that
1: we have a a wonderful talented group of young folks that are reaching out to a lot of companies uh, and then our mid-level folks that are but they're, I respect their opinions a lot. And they're also the ones who kind of drive things. They keep me honest. They keep me going to meetings. They schedule my day. And I actually, I'll give you a good example. There's a entrepreneur who's a nice guy out in California. His company kind of went through a speed bump, but I think he probably has turned it around. And I was out one day and he refused to basically meet with my younger guys because he wanted to meet with me. I was like, okay, you could do that. But and then he kept interacting with me and he kept sending me emails. And I've got a lot on my plate. And this is just one of many. It was an interesting opportunity, but it wasn't like obvious. It wasn't like Monday it was like, okay, lean in, run. Right. It was going to take me a while to really look at his numbers and really understand, has he made this turnaround effective? And he never reached out to any of my team. And I never really got around to getting my younger guys engaged. And it's sitting in my, I literally have it in my inbox for over three months now. I'm sure he's moved on as something I might want to follow up on at some point, but it just didn't make it to the top of my mind. Whereas had he gotten one of my younger teammates engaged, they would have been in my office every other day if they ended out liking the deal. And so you can do better sometimes getting the advocates, and it's probably no different than a sales cycle. I think you'll find, yeah, the CIO might sign off on a lot of checks, but getting his team or her team to really endorse Raise the attention. product. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it could be, it, you know, advocates come in very many forms and they're, you know, sometimes the top is the best way to go. And there's no doubt you get to the top of, uh, you know, a firm like ours and you make a compelling pitch. It's awesome. Like you'll see immediately in 45 minutes, the reaction of the senior partners, but sometimes, you know, working from the bottom up could be very effective. Letting them become your friend is to me a great, that's how I learned the business. I became friends with all the CEOs that I worked with 25 years ago when I first started. And I would kind of basically be my CEO advocate. I really looked out for their interest almost more than I looked Mm -hmm. out for my firm's interest. Obviously, if it really got to something that really mattered, I'd have to think about the firm first. But generally speaking, I was there to advocate the difficult decisions that they had to make, and they would always want to manage, help me manage them up to the partners that were working on the deals. And so I think that's you know that's a big part of it, and I think people underestimate how engaged and how how helpful. A broader set of staff can be, and again, it, it's probably firm-specific. I don't think any two firms are alike.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, and there are definitely firms I sit on boards with that I've never met anyone but the partners of those yeah. firms. So, as far as I could tell, there there are no younger folks in those firms, or if they are, they're, they're sort of buried in the back.
2: You touched on something that is interesting to me. Like, uh, how did you get started? I was I was 30 years old, so I was pretty young. Um,
1: I was at a very large private equity firm doing technology investing, uh, Warburg Pincus, which is one of the bigger firms in the world. They had about a sixth of their deal flow was in tech, and I was one of those folks in that group. In New York? In New York. And they kept raising bigger funds, but for them, they wanted to move their strategy to coincide with their fund size, meaning they wanted to write bigger checks. And so I happened to like some of the smaller deals, and there was a few deals that came by that were, you know, five, ten million dollar checks that just didn't make sense for that firm. And I said, well, this is kind of what makes me happy. And, you know, it's funny. A lot of people start companies for lots of different reasons. I'm a believer that people who start companies to do what they want, not to make money, probably tend to be more successful. It's the passion of what you're trying to build more than it is the objective to make some massive amount of money at the end of the day and we had no idea what we were getting into when we started insight um we just liked deals and we liked CEOs that were running 5 to 10 million dollar businesses and growing and i think that's sort of what started and i i had no money then i mean our first fund was 16 million dollars and back then that was you know not even that small but it was small but you know and we kind of scrapped around a lot of money over the years and my timing was perfect right 1995 was about the best time you could Right. Imagine putting a mm-hmm. shingle up because you had the bubble behind you for the next four years. So we got a lot of exits early, uh, which allowed us to raise a lot more money. And then everyone decided they wanted to be in technology and the rest kind of played out.
0: Where did you meet your co-founder?
1: He was a consultant to the private equity firm that I was working with. So he and I worked on one deal together that became part of Veritas, a very successful company. And or is really what uh, Veritas became before it got acquired by Symantec. And uh we ran around the country looking to buy all these systems administration tools for back then, UNix, which was considered the operating system of choice and uh I probably spent i don't know half a year on planes with him, so we became good friends
2: so what was challenging along the way? you know like 2000. Uh, that's... <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean two thousand was a near death experience for a lot of folks, ourselves included and we were lucky enough, I mean, pure friggin' luck, that we closed our fund.
0: Second fund. That
1: fourth fund. Fourth, fourth already? Fund. Well, we wow. did like a couple little quickies like that were like one-year funds, but we were up, up to our fourth fund. We raised $700 million, which then was a lot. And we closed it around 2000, mid-2000s, um, before the right, market before. crashed. And, you know, I had a lot of LPs a year later wishing I would reduce the size of the fund and asking for money back. And, and the first year or two of that fund was probably the worst investments I've ever made. So, as the, You know, people think that, you know, the best time to buy is when the world is cheap. You know, in technology, that's not my view. And the world was, first, we did a few deals when the world was not cheap, right? It was still crazy. So that was like, call the first six to nine months of that vintage fund were just crappy deals at a peak market where, you know, a lot of the ideas, quite frankly, just made no sense mm-hmm. based on where the world was. And then when the world got cheaper, we couldn't find anything really growing. So the handful of deals we did were kind of scrappy deals that we're trying to figure out how to grow. But we took our time. That was probably the slowest deployment of any capital we've ever had, five years. And that was a huge benefit because some of the deals we started to do in 2003 and 2004 had early successes. And on the back of those successes, we were able to redemonstrate our strategy working. And we raised Fund 5, and that was really the beginning of the second chapter of my firm. Um, I mean, we've been in a very good market since 2006 for technology. I mean, we've really had unprecedented, and it may continue for 20 years, but an unprecedented level of growth in technology for the last decade.
0: 25 years later, right? That is. Yeah. When is enough?
1: Yeah. I mean, enough is not defined by money for me. It's defined by fun and do I enjoy what I do? And I certainly enjoy working with entrepreneurs. Uh, I enjoy coming to Israel to visit my friends. It's nice to be able to work with smart, intelligent oh, yeah. people who are growing and dreaming, and dreaming, yeah. And, and, dreaming, and, vision, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. it's 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 a that so that part's amazing. I think there's still a chapter to be written about what we're trying to do with the firm. So I think no one's really quite tried to create a firm about the way we've gone about it, uh, which is to do a lot more deals that are kind of the same as opposed to doing bigger deals. So lots of firms have grown, but they've usually grown by writing bigger checks, mm-hmm. and we're trying to grow by just doing more of what we know well our deals look pretty much the same in terms of financial profile that they looked 20 years ago.
0: But then what is your vision? I mean, you've been doing it for 25 years. You said it's not about the money. How do you, how do you know that your vision is fulfilled?
1: (laughs) I will know when this is going to sound unexpected, but I think we actually don't have enough money. Right. So while 6 billion sounds like a lot, we spend most of our Monday mornings shooting things that we like and, arguing about whether or not this company makes the cut. And a lot of our invest or our competitors invest in those companies and many of those companies go off to do really well. So we're wrong, right? Our cut isn't right. perfect, but there's real value to looking at your mistakes, both what you've written checks for and what you didn't write checks for. Right. I think people who only look at the mistakes of the checks they've written are missing out on a massive amount of data on what they didn't write checks to. And, and I once had a partner who Mike Problem was, he was too conservative, and there was a lot of really good deals that we ended up not doing. And I would say we might be a much bigger firm today had we done those deals. Um, they were more in the buyout space, but you know we were very conservative and chose not to pursue those deals. So I think you have to be open about both the pros and the cons of that. But I think you know, for me, I think there's, you know, I, I think we could build a, a leading firm to doing what we do. The market we're in, software is growing, let's say SaaS software is growing at 20% a year. So you could argue we can grow 20% a year. Like, shouldn't that be kind of correlated? Uh, we're not growing anywhere near that, right? My last fund was $5 billion. My current fund is $6, Six. Billion. That's three years. So the, that's 20%, that's 7% a year. That's
0: not the same as... You're not quite there. We usually talk about how startups sort of chase investors um, but I'm sure that you also lose deals sometimes, so what makes you lose a deal?
1: We do lose. I'd say on brand awareness, there's only a very very small subset of firms that you could count on your hand where we might lose because of reputation right So there's a couple of guys on the west Coast that are have spectacular reputations and and you know we may lose head to head even if we try really hard and then there's a lot of deals where we'll lose because you know you can't follow up on everything right and so at some point there will be somebody else who's more enthusiastic more aggressive flies to australia three times to win a deal or has the senior partner fly three times to win a deal and you know we may you know not have the relationship with the entrepreneurs in that instance that's as good as another firm then obviously the most common reason to lose a deal is price so you know not everything could be you know what, you know, right,
0: but that's different. It's just yeah, that's a choice. Mean, yeah, that's more of a choice, arguably. Um, when do you decided this one you're not gonna fly all the way to Australia for? Like, when do you? How do you make this case? You know,
1: some of it is, some of it is, is you know decided for you just on schedules and reality, and you don't have enough data. So you're like, okay, from the outside looking in, it looks pretty good. If it looks amazing, and there's only a handful of deals a year, like there's one I'm pursuing now that. I think is one of the most... You went easy. all the way to... I'm, I, I, didn't go, I went to California for a day and so I'm, I'm going to go... It sounds
2: hard for you. I, I knowing you, it might be harder than flying to Australia.
1: It could be. <laughs> <laughs> they are getting a direct flight soon. Um, sure. But I'm going to sure. probably hopefully go back out another day and it's an exceptional story, exceptional team uh, and I think an exceptional opportunity. So that one, like I'll move mountains to win. So I'm putting my heart into that one. I still may lose it and you know they've got lots of choice and... We'll see. Um,
0: What's exceptional about it?
1: I think the market is massive. I think the market position they have is unusually strong. And I think the management team is really special. Um, look, we, we moved mountains to, to, to be partners with you guys, right? And we were way Did behind. You? Yeah, we were way behind. Tell us
0: about it. Well, you know,
1: this was a little bit small for us, so we needed to get knocked on the head a little bit. One of my partners... Quickly, fell, Jeff fell in love with the deal early. But you guys were down the road with a bunch of other investors. And then it so happened we were lucky because Israel's a small country that uh, one of your board members was a good friend of mine, Abishai. And so we were able to spend some time with him to help him, you know, persuade – Roy, that we're good guys, and I think that had a huge influence in your selection in the end.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was a very easy choice because uh, the relationship was there, and and we're always like looking, you know. We but my guess know. is, if we didn't know him, we
1: probably would not have been
0: right. Uh, familiarity yeah.
2: always helps because right? others yeah, were, yeah, yeah. others were
1: earlier. Yeah, I'm saying right.
2: like that we was were a, a huge that was probably, thing for yeah. us that uh, you know that Avisha said like. Uh, he told me exactly how it's going to be, and he, he knew you, and uh, and and it was very clear, you know, that this is something good for us. So, because there is a lot of fear, you know, it's a you have a lot of startups on your portfolio. We just like have very few investors. So, like I I I would argue like uh, the investor is like a bigger part in the uh, company, in yeah. the in the founder's life than yeah, no the way other around. way around. Okay, you can write off an investment, you know, for us, it's, you know, what we do. Uh, so it was so we we're really eager to pick the right partner. And, and you know, uh, it was very important to have Avishai there for us.
0: Speaking of Avishai, you invested uh, in us and in Wix, two Israeli companies that are not moving to the States, uh, let alone to the Silicon Valley, as we the say, anytime thing, soon. Right? You're going to hit
1: my hot button.
0: What do you think about it?
1: One i'm obviously based on outcomes I'm very supportive of it uh, I think the worst decision you could make probably is to move to silicon valley <laughs> uh I'm not a big fan of Israeli companies relocating out there unless they have something that really requires that ecosystem um, Why would and that be? and like the j as an example may need to be in that ecosystem of the valley to kind of create that open source you know reputation, but very few companies I think have a reason to see the valley is the best place to open up headquarters uh and you're competing with facebook google apple you know for engineers and for other resources and you know, those companies can spend a crazy amount of money and i think candidly the culture of the valley is about money you know you, you look at the what you guys build in in israel and you look at the, the spirit of the companies and the that the excitement that people have uh, I was just with one of our investments and we we're talking about Wix and, and literally how everybody who works at Wix loves working for Wix. Like it's just a remarkable net promoter score of employees. And, you know, that's a really valuable thing. That means if and they haven't had that problem, but if something were to go sideways, I think most people there would would Stick hunker down them, yeah. and work together as a as a team. And there's a lot of transparency. And I think, you know, you guys probably have a similar culture. So I think. Culture matters a lot. I think it's very difficult to build that culture in Silicon Valley where people are kind of constantly having FOMO, right? Oh, I want to be on Uber's, you know, cap table, not XYZ cap table. So, uh, and I think in today's world, you know, Israel used to have a big constraint because you don't have a lot of customers, right? That was your limit as a country. So you had to kind of move some sort of sales and marketing effort To to the States, Um, which usually meant the CEO had to go with that, because CEO has to be pretty close to the sales and marketing. Um, historically, at least for enterprise products, today product matters probably more than sales and marketing. Product market fit is so critical, and at the same time, you can acquire, as you guys have demonstrated, a, a lot of business remotely. Uh, and I think the function of sales or sales and marketing could play a, a sort of more tactical role, which could be built in the states. Doesn't mean it's a bad decision, like SciSense moved to the U.S. I think that was a good decision for them.
0: Is New York different than than the Silicon Valley in that case?
1: I think it's very different for Israeli companies. I think it's just culturally a lot more similarity Similar. between New York and Tel Aviv. But it's just you're just Brooklyn here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you still have. Now I understand
0: ex- why you make so many investments in Israel. <laughs>
1: it is, it's the best. But you, you have, you still have some of the same money. You know, it's expensive resources are expensive, but I do think, you know, because New York got so many industries going on that there's not the same fear of missing out. Some other startup is doing better than we are. I've got to go change jobs tomorrow. So I think you don't have the same level of sort of swapping out Mm -hmm. and sort of cycling of, of careers. So I think you can get real culture built in New York. I think uh, it has a lot of pros in terms of access, time zone and, Uh, talent.
2: Is it right to say that like the valley is more into like uh, I don't know visionary ideas that may somehow not have uh, uh, a holding in the ground while uh, New York mentality is more like uh, on results or I don't know like uh, grounded in in something real?
1: Yeah I think the benefit of the valley's dream it big is Couple of them hit it big, and they hit it really big when they do. Um, but I would agree. I think that there's a lot of sort of, you know, a lot more vision talk than there is, you know, execution, execution talk. And that's not across everybody. I of mean, that's that, there's clearly plenty of companies that are about building products, great products, out of the valley um, with great cultures around that. So I think, and we do plenty of investing in Silicon Valley. So we're not in any way. Against it, it's just not for every company, and if you had a choice and you had already a great talent pool and a great set of engineers outside the valley, and we would say this not just for Israel but for European companies where we invest quite a bit, rarely does that make the most sense for talent. Uh, which is usually what people think. It's like, oh, I have to go there because that's where the talent is. But there's talent.
0: And money. That's the second thing that people think. Oh, I can be closer to the investors in this valley. I'm obviously
1: biased on that. So (laughs) I think there's plenty of money in New York. Um, Well, there is. I mean, the the big checks are actually not in the valley uh, for tech. Even for consumer tech, there's, you know, real dollars in New York City. Uh, Is
0: this whole thing of building a relationship before asking for money something you believe in? Again, startups sometimes think that they should talk to you for a while, get to know you, uh, hang out with you, and then ask for money.
1: I mean, we inadvertently or advertently talk to people for a long time because we're reaching out to you guys more than you guys are reaching out to us, companies. So we're usually sort of staying in touch and keeping track. But this, if, if, if you look like you're ready to raise money, we are not. We don't need to have six months Such to... Long accept, history. Yeah, yeah. Th- no, no, if, if, if you're... You know, if if there's clear market traction with what you're trying to do, you know, I could make a decision in 48 hours. We don't need to, you know, have some long-standing history with the the company to get excited.
0: Really, 48 hours?
1: I mean, I make a decision in one hour, then I have to execute it. (laughs) But it's pretty much seven hours. Yeah, for me. I mean, if I if I I I mean, I could. You know, I've done this long enough now that if I could meet with an entrepreneur and feel like this is, I, I mean, sometimes you have to validate it. And it's not as obvious, but if, assuming that what you're being told is true, which is, I think it's pretty easy to have a strong instinct about a business.
0: Yeah, with 25 years of experience, it yeah, I probably gets. Honestly,
1: for late stage investors, if you can't figure out that you love something in the first meeting, it's probably not for you. I mean,
0: why are you saying it for a late investor?
1: Because there's, well, because then it's more obvious, right? So you don't need to, I mean, it's it's in the momentum, it's right. in the story, it's in the market. Every you have it's enough in the date, numbers. There's yeah. enough data in that first meeting, the numbers to value a business on, and then there's the intangibles, which is markets, product, and management. We debate endlessly, and I don't think any firm has a good answer to how much weight you could put to markets. It kind of comes out ultimately so in your valuation. What what is markets? How big is mean? the end market that you're addressing? Now, yours is more challenging to articulate, right? Because it's... it's Well, it's (laughs) it's massive on the one hand, but it's also sort of, well, there's a lot of ways maybe I could skin that cat, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is Monday going to dominate that entire market or are they going to get a slice of what is a really Mm -hmm. big market and some people will just, you know, slice Mm -hmm. it up in different ways? Where there are others where, you know, I have a company that sells, you know, software to banks and you can kind of just see, all right, if you win the few big banks you're ultimately going to win all the big banks because it's really hard to build this product. So now it's just a question of when and what's the penetration rate. And you
2: kind of have a pretty confident view of how big you'll get eventually. It's so just a question have, of time. So, so do you meet like a lot of, uh, let's say, good startups that did great execution and you say, well, the market is, is like, uh, you know, this is not a good big market. Enough? Like you're not going to be big just because of the market? All the time. I mean, it's probably one of the number That's one That's probably the limiters. easiest one to yeah, eliminate. So what on. is like, a, could you give like an example for a market that is not interesting enough? Uh,
0: or even a case of a startup that you met and you thought they were interesting. You
1: know, I, 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 I'm not prepared for that. <laughs> uh, I will give it some thought. But, you know, there's a lot of Me Too products out there. That's probably the most common thing where you sort of, you're one, uh, you know, some have value props that I don't find. Totally compelling. They're kind of soft value props where you're, uh, you know, you're trying to make employees happy. You know, I had one, and that may be doing very well. I don't even know, but like, you know, one or ones where you feel like you've got to really change the way people work. A lot really, of
0: education into yeah. To yeah. really
1: get traction, you've got to change the way they they operate. Like they're not comfortable giving feedback to employees on an hourly basis. Like that might be a great idea but it might also be a very hard sell. It doesn't mean it's not going to be a big company, by the way. If somebody mm-hmm. were going to do that, it just means, uh, you know, that's a lot of risk compared to somebody who's got a, an ROI that's easily measured and easily defined. Um, you know, there's some very vertical niches where, you know, you're solving some problem for some pharmaceutical companies and you realize, well, there's 20 large pharmaceutical companies. Your average ASP is $200,000. I see that you're getting very quick traction, but you're going to quickly right. run out of market room to grow those 20 pharmaceutical Very clear businesses. Glass ceiling. So yep. I mean, those are sort of the things, but it this is this is kind of the, the the non-science part. This is the art of what we do. And look, it's the later the stage investor, the less generally we have skills of doing this, right? So it's it's unusual to find, you know, one of our competitors made a killing over the years by recognizing in the mid 2000s that the rest of the world was a really big place for the internet, and we're just going to copy business models right. that the U.S. has done in the rest of the world. Right. And lo and behold, that was a really smart yeah, vision. Yeah, we all know of them. And their, <laughs> and their math was all about end market. It's going to be X because of the number of people and the value per capita of each person, whatever. And,
0: and the use case is already set. So Use
1: case is set. I just have to pick the market leader. By the way, if I shovel enough money into the market leader, and SoftBank does a little bit of this now too, I'm, I can create the market leader which is kind of an interesting, unusual dynamic, point. right? Yeah. So I could I could capitalize one company so well that all the other companies can't raise money because I've now set the bar so high.
0: And you create a dominance just by doing Yeah, that.
1: and so then you have to be patient. And there's probably moments in 2008, 9, 10 where that strategy looked sketchy because the world was kind of in a tough place. But then if you had enough patience, you know, the world turned around and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, there is an Amazon in pretty much every country or
0: but something tells me you wouldn't pick this strategy.
1: No, no, we actually in 2000 I had that strategy and then I kind of fumbled on it and we took our eye off the ball and we were really focused much more on software and so it didn't make as much sense but uh, and now today I think it's 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 a little harder to do cuz there's you know lots of companies that are thinking about that uh, and a lot of the more obvious ideas have been in fact invested in. Right.
0: Being the me too of the me too yeah. fund is but not But that's a good example a, of a late stage right.
1: firm thinking about markets and end markets. So that's an example of a late stage firm, you know, really focusing on markets and then coming back to valuations based on that, which I think is really interesting. I don't think it's the norm though. I think that's probably maybe 20% of late stage firms put that much emphasis on markets. Obviously the early stage guys, that's their bread and butter. Now they think about it more from you know, they don't really care how to do. They don't have to pencil out the math exactly because they're coming so early. If it's a five billion dollar market or a twenty billion dollar market, it's good enough when you're right. investing. Some early, fifty million dollar valuations. Late stage have to get a little more precision around the market mm-hmm. size because you know we're not going to make the hundred x in that early check. And yeah, you'll still do well at five billion if that's the market size. But you know, you, you really make your big returns if it. Proves to be a $10 billion market.
0: Yeah. So what do you think, what is the difference between the way you evaluate a management team at a late stage and the way that an early stage fund does it? Because you just said that there's a difference in market. Well, I think, so. I
1: think if I were an early, I, I'm, not, I'm not an early stage fund, so I don't know. But if I were an early stage investor, I'd probably put more emphasis on product and less emphasis on execution because the most important thing is to get the product delivered. Uh, you could... Arguably higher and bolster up your execution over time. It's it's certainly easier than building product. Late stage funds we've already come in to execution and and my selection for management is is slightly different. I just want people that I could work with and like. I mean, it's just like you want. You know, Roy, Roy wants an investor that he could work with. I, I think that's a big factor for me as well. One, I have done this long enough that I don't need to do it anymore, right. and so I, I don't want to do
0: have it, the luxury of choosing.
1: You know, there was a generation. When I used to invest in Israel, that was very different than the current generation,
0: right?
1: And it's a, it was a much more difficult, confrontational, sort of environment, right? And you guys have changed a lot as a country, and, and the people here have changed a lot over the years. Um, but I, you know, I want somebody who's ultimately willing to listen to, for the same reason you guys like that when you presented Monday as a name to us, we absorbed the facts as best you could present them, and we kind of debated them. We debated them. We we aired it out in a very open way, and then we moved on. We we're like, okay. Case made, you win, like or close enough. It didn't even matter. Like right? we were like, we may never get 100 percent there, but you know, you guys feel good about it. That's that's fine. Like I want to work with people who, by the same token, if I presented something and had a cogent reason for hiring more sales folks or thinking about X, Y, or Z, and the facts were reasonably demonstrable, and it was an area that I may have known more about than you, that
0: you're able to, listen you'd be to that, listening,
1: yeah. you'd absorb that, and you'd mm-hmm. say, okay, thanks for the advice, Jeff. I think. We, we could incorporate that. Um, so I tend to look for people who, you know, first and foremost want to win. I think that's, and then secondarily want to listen. And the combination of that is really formidable. It's really hard to beat an entrepreneur who's got the desire to win and is open to listening.
0: How do you see that? Is it because of a big vision? Like what are the signs for that?
1: You know, I see it when they talk about their competitors. I see it when they talk about their products And, you know, competitors is, like, the best way to see it. Like, you could see when someone gets really detailed and they're in the weeds and they know exactly what their competitive products look like, it just means that they're obsessed about winning. Uh, You know, I think that's one example. There are other ways of of just seeing it. I mean, it's just obsession with the business and little things. Sometimes it comes out in the details more than it comes out Mm. in the big picture. To be honest, big picture scares me. People start sitting there on whiteboards painting how they're going to own the world That's one thing. And that, that may make them great sort of inspirational leaders. But to me, it's the folks and you guys are a great example of the little things. We were excited about you for a lot of reasons, but when you guys start walking through the way you run your business, I mean, it was inspiring. It was so thoughtful. I mean, it was so granular and clearly Roy was really in the weeds. Like there was no question I was going to ask him that he wasn't going to be pretty close to prepared to answer. And that's, a sign up somebody, a CEO who's really thinking every day about what's happening, and it doesn't mean that you don't have a management team to support you. It just means that you're in the weeds with your management team,
2: thinking about the business. On a different topic, how do you value startups? Like, how do you look at the, their potential, the growth, the whatever? You know, because valuation is a valuation is a big big thing issue. Yeah. So. so
1: the, Markets generally kind of cluster around multiples of revenue, right? There's some forecast of future revenues that we all start with. And then there's premiums that can get ascribed to that based on either mostly competition, right? So if we get a sense that a lot of people are looking at the deal, we'll start sharpening our pencils and say, okay, well, normally the math would suggest, you know, 10 times end of year run rate, but, you know, given – we really, really like this market, and there's three other firms chasing it, we might have to stretch a little bit on price.
2: So 10 times the uh, your run rate, what does that mean? End of year? Yeah, or what? maybe the forecasted year, yeah. Okay, so the forecasted year, the revenue, or ARR, like uh, if you're... We, I, mean, if I mean, we we're, work we're, off we're, of ARR. Yeah, but then we have other variables that are
1: very subtle, right? So, I mean, in our model is net retention, gross retention. These are for software companies now, but even applying to some consumer subscription businesses, uh, Net new, bookings, net new bookings growth is probably one of the most defining factors for us. Um, so we want to know that that, which is really what tracks your long-term growth rate, mm-hmm. uh, is growing quickly. And you know, these are things that we've kind of picked up over the years. And it depends on how big you are, right? Net new growth doesn't mean a lot for a $10 million business. It means a lot for a $50 million business.
2: So do you is it fair to say that when you're looking into the numbers of an investment, you're looking at trends rather than the absolutes? or both or definitely both. Both
1: matter. I mean, you could trend from 50% net retention to 70. I don't really care. Like, that's pretty low. Look, well, what are we really trying to do? And no one has a crystal ball, but what I told my LP, like, we're trying to be forecasting a five-year model, right, in our heads. What, how big could this company be in five years? Usually in that fifth year, you're big enough that we can look at either historic sort of public market comps or private equity Mm-hmm. multiples for those types of businesses, the private equity multiples being like your downside. Like I know there'll be some financial firm that will pay X times revenue for a well-managed subscription business.
0: We met with a founder a few days ago. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Jeff. And he asked us, um, how am I supposed to really predict the next five years? How precise can I be? I mean, should I go big? Should I go small? And there remember?
2: Is the, yeah, and there is a thing. A, with am I this, lying least, here? Yeah, is there, there is a, his projection... For the next three years, we were, were based on the actual signed contracts he has. It was like, that, really would, be, that would be conservative. <laughs> yeah, it ultra was ultra like, conservative. So yeah. you, you call it conservative. And that's He's probably like,
1: hurtful, right? Because yeah. some people only read the one pager and they don't get to the substance of it and they don't hear the story and the narrative of him being conservative. The flip side is, you know, we get the hockey sticks often. And while we will be willing to look through some hockey sticks to understand the growth, it's definitely a, a red mark against the entrepreneur from the get-go, right? What, to, what to, to have a hockey stick? Well, if it's a hockey stick based on fact, as yours was <laughs> a little bit, that's fine. But if it's a hockey stick that really defies sort of historic plausibility, so imagine you were growing at 50% and then all of a sudden you start forecasting 100 plus percent growth for the next three years. And you're like, well, I'm making all these changes. Like, okay. Maybe that's true, but you probably don't want to lead with that as your base case business plan. I think that it, again, it's not like a oh, I won't explore further and try and understand. But entrepreneurs who don't make their numbers, you know, consistently is
0: it's not a great trait. I mean, so what's the right way to pro- to project? I
1: think you do your best with a reasonable conservative look. You're going to be partners with these people, so whoever you pick as your investor, if you put numbers on the board that you are not support, achievable. Yeah. And you can't blame them for being upset when you miss it. Like that was possibly why they gave you the money. So if you basically created a a scenario where you attracted money based on a lot of untruths, whatever they might be, forecasts, product, et cetera, and then they get angry with you when
0: the the water level
1: goes down and everyone sees what's real, it's pretty hard for you to, To to come back and say, oh, you guys aren't cooperating with me. Because I'm hitting a, a speed bump, like actually, no, you, you kind of knew the speed bump was there. You might have known. You knew more than we did, and you, you, you sort of tried to sell something that wasn't true. So I think it's always good to try and be. No one's perfect, and I certainly never hold entrepreneurs accountable to every number on a page. Uh, that would be crazy. But you want to know that everyone put their best foot forward in an honest way, and you know, if you're disappointed, then you're, you know, you, you you share it together as a team.
2: And, and then there is, I think, uh, the, the other side of projecting, which is like if we have done it before, you know, there is, you know, all, almost all certainty that we're going to do what we did plus, you know, so like projecting. What do you mean? If you're overperforming,
1: I would say there's a trade off that entrepreneurs don't appreciate, which is you could be the under overdeliver over deliver CEO, and you'll sleep like a baby at night because you'll always make your investors happy. Or you could be the overpromise underdeliver CEO, in which case you're going to constantly have friction with your investors, and but you'll get a better valuation perhaps up front. So if you're really, and I think a lot of that sometimes gets to ego, because truthfully the dilution usually doesn't matter. It's usually a couple million dollars more one way or the other in terms of which scenario plays out. But if but that to me is almost like if you're so obsessed with valuation, then you'll end up being the overpromise underdeliver guy, and you'll end up having a very
0: stressful Stressful life with your board members
1: all the time. And if you're the under-promise, over-deliver guy, you'll probably take a little bit of a hit on valuation, but you'll sleep like a baby every night. And that's kind of who you are. Like, who do you want to be? If you really, really care about getting the best valuation always, I can guarantee you at some point most businesses, not all, but most businesses you'll find yourself sideways with an investor who felt like they overpaid.
2: I I feel there is the third kind which is like uh, what I was which is I'm not trying to underpromise and uh, overdeliver which I was I was too much underpromising you know like uh, it's like the okay, you say that's, conservative that, that's probably not correct I was, not, great I was not like we believed we're going to do way 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 better and we're onto something big but then you know it's very hard to to sell it when you know to say we're going to reach uh, in 3 years whatever $100 right? yeah, 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 yeah. But, I got it but, it's, it's but, it, it seemed like a We're three years behind, but it looks like it's there, but you
1: know, I'm... So this will be your your, your remorse, will be you're worth $5 billion, you raised money slightly cheaper than you could have raised otherwise, and you've probably given up 4% of the company that you might have had yourself shared with your management team. So instead of being worth $700 million, you're only worth $650 million. It's just not that bad. Okay, a so
2: you're saying it's like uh, the, the <laughs> it good. Uh, and that's the other tip like uh, good companies raise money. I just, there's, by the way, entrepreneurs
1: obsess over valuation and then they just are incredibly sloppy about how much money they raise. It's like, oh, I'll keep raising money. I'll keep raising money. I'll keep, but you don't need the money. Like, so you'll take the 10% dilution at this wonderful valuation, even though you don't need the money. I had a company that I was involved with that, you know, um, well, actually, Wix did this too. Like, you know, the, we'll raise converts because the converts are at a massively high price. But I don't need the money. But but it's such a good price. Like it's you know, fifty percent above my current stock price. But it's just cash that sits on the balance sheet, earning one percent. So I think you know it's fascinating to me that entrepreneurs are so excited about getting the attention of a great valuation for capital that they actually don't need. And they'll be more sort of thoughtless about how they spend their money or raise their money than they are about. Maximizing that valuation. I, I don't think entrepreneurs make bad decisions. I think they are really
0: emotional
1: about valuations, and they're actually really not very thoughtful about dilution, <laughs> which okay. is kind of ironic. It's, it just feels great getting a billion dollars. Like, I get it. Like, it's exciting. Like, I'm worth a billion dollars. Like, you go home, you're – But you think uh, it's optimizing yeah, yeah, for yeah.
0: the wrong thing then?
1: I just think that it's it's a false it's, – it's, it's, it's a good thing to optimize on, but the truth is you should be optimizing on dilution, right? That's really what you're – if your focus is – and you need capital to grow the business. No one's arguing that you need money to grow the business. But in the end, it's a it's a balance. And a lot of companies raise way more money than they need. And, oh, by the way, that often creates spending habits. Yeah. Not you guys, but there's a lot of companies that will take that capital and become pretty sloppy with it. And I think certainly Silicon Valley's got lots of history of companies that you know, raise $200 million and nothing to show for it, right? So I think, you know, it's – If our, I'm not saying it's going to change, but I think, you know, entrepreneurs should put it all into one package and say, I I need dilution. I want a good investor, but I also don't need every nickel that's available out there because we're going to throw as much money as we can at you guys. Like once we like something, we just want to own as much of it as we can. But by and large, you know, you should figure out how much money you need to actually execute your plan and, And, you know, you need to give yourself a cushion if it's cheap and money is relatively cheap to the dilution. There's always risk reward. You're like, well, I... Yeah, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to be overly conservative with the amount of money they need, and then, uh, quite frankly, as they get bigger, you know, I don't recommend this for smaller companies, but bigger companies can use debt, right? Like, if you really want to opt, we talked about this.
0: Yeah, we 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 do it. it, We do
1: it. Yeah, but like a lot of debt, you use a little (laughs) bit of debt. Like you, at some point, you could say, I could borrow fifty million dollars. Like that's what the market will give me. It's it's a ten percent. Return that's way we're cheaper than equity?
2: Conservative. Uh, we have a formula. Like uh, we decided uh, in the beginning now that we don't just say, like, okay, let's take another few millions from debt. Like we're, we have a formula. Sometimes the money comes back to the bank, by the way. Like it depends on the money. Well, look, in your mind is a risk
1: reward always, right? And ultimately you realize that you're building a really big pie. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying to yourself is, I don't mind giving up a little bit of slices of those pies if I could sleep like a baby but it's not necessarily the most capital efficient way to raise money, but that's fine. that's a, it's, it's a preference and everyone has a right to make it. It's easier for us to be a little bit more analytical about it because to your point earlier, we have a lot of companies, so we don't think about that one in a million black swan event that might make having the extra $20 million worth the insurance policy. Um, And we also even more so know that we are the bank at the end of the day. So for us, to watch a company overcapitalize themselves like, right? we'll give you the money if you need it like you you could come to us whenever you want like mm-hmm. we will always write you that check assuming things are going reasonably well and if they're not going reasonably well you probably don't want that money like you probably want to be thinking about other things
2: how do you make money like as insight as as yourself we get paid in two ways
1: uh like any asset manager most asset managers even people who put money into Betterment or any of those tools. There's a management fee, which for private equity ranges anywhere from one and a half percent for some very large funds to three uh, percent for some of the smaller. And that covers all up. the employees plus the travel to Israel. I mean, I, I eat all this, right? So unless the board recompensates me for some of that, but, you know, most of that stuff is on our nickel mm-hmm. um, and any other expenses that we pay for for running the business, which is, you know, more expensive than you'd think. And obviously the personnel for what we have to hire is competitive. Oh, obviously,
2: with but the, like, just it's, it's interesting, you know. It's not a bad life. Like.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not looking for any crocodile tears here. <laughs> but uh, And then we get paid as a percent of the profits that we make across the fund. So we aggregate our wins and losses, and then we get to keep most most of us about 20% of those profits. And somebody like Benchmark could be 30% or more. Uh, and then some big guys might be, you know, fifteen percent, and then there might be a preferred return, so, so that's like we have so over we have,
2: what you what, what the fund size is. Like you return the fund, and then on the on well, the, no. So
1: there's two on the delta. There's two ways of doing waterfalls. Okay. One is, you know, give me all my money back first, and then you get to keep twenty percent of all the other proceeds. Others are will kind of estimate where the fund is and it's. Profits, and then you can take your share out along the way. Well, based on carrying value of the portfolio, so we could, in theory, if we sold a company a week after we invested, take some percent of that. Usually, we have a clawback mechanism, so for us, we kind of don't take a lot of that money early on. But it it catches up a little bit over time. But it's not as extreme as what's called a European waterfall, where you catch all the money
0: only once you once
1: the one X is returned. So we have a a preferred return which our LPs benefit from, once we kind of feel like the fund is generating more than that and looks like that on paper, then if we start selling things, we get to keep some, not all, of the carry as it comes out.
0: You raised your last fund earlier on this year, right? Last year.
1: Last year? This time.
0: Okay. (laughs) How much have you deployed already or how much do you have left?
1: We've deployed a lot. (laughs) I mean, you know, over 30% now.
0: So are you still actively looking in Israel or are you done for this fund?
1: No, no, no. Quite active. So, we've, This fund will have you know, a number of really good Israeli investments that we've made. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it's kind of nice because I think the more we do, the more we learn. And, and I think the easier it is for us to work in this community. So you know, we're big fans.
0: What do you like, Israel?
1: Uh, I think you guys have great human resources. So I think your products are great. I think the entrepreneurs here are the most interesting entrepreneurs as a class of, if I could segment of any in the sense that you guys have going to my earlier points of what makes for a great entrepreneur. You have a will to win that is somehow built into your culture, but you also have a willing to adapt. Uh, Very few companies I've ever invested in have the ability to create new products and new markets, and I find Israeli entrepreneurs are the closest to, you know, it's, it's not consistent always, but I think as, as good as, if not the best at actually creating new ideas and, and bringing those to market, and I think that's pretty unique. Um, so I think ultimately it's it's a great set of products matched with some really good human resources.
2: We've been told about Israelis, like, okay, Israelis are just good at, uh, you know, patents and, and like, uh, hardcore, stuff, yeah. uh, 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 like, technical uh, stuff. Uh, and then, like, you wouldn't build great products, and then we built great products. And now uh, they're uh, saying now, you know, when the CEO w- was needed to replace in the bubble era with a, uh, it was an American CEO that you had to take. And... Then they told us we, you have to move to the it's US nice. and now it, it's not. And now I think uh, I heard uh, big brands will not come out of Israel, which is now. Yeah, you don't know how debunked. to build your brand. Yeah, yeah we, you see Wix and, and uh, yeah. Viber and, yeah. and a lot of others. So what, uh, uh, like, what, what is your take on that in terms of, uh, you know, where you see or limits or not limits or, or stuff that, you know, you feel are I just like the, not true.
1: Look, I think the historic prejudices had some basis for sort of statistics, but that was a very different market where, the, I, you know, the way you think, I think, think about technology was pushed a lot mm-hmm. back in the 90s and 2000s, which meant you need sales forces and, you know, you think of Oracle and knocking on doors and convincing companies that they should buy this technology. And the internet has kind of turned that on its head, and so people find you, and you know you need to be clever enough to be in front of them, but at the end, they're researching products and they're trying products, and so it's become much more of a buyer's market, which in my view, favors products and cleverness over classic brute force sales, which I think you know plays to the strengths of, I think, the Israeli companies. And then I think the way in which one discovers products today is much more of an analytical, process than it is hiring a great advertising firm to create a great message that you sort of blast across a bunch of magazines, right, which was kind of a very US-centric thing because that's where all the stuff was consumed.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So to run a business remotely today generally is much easier uh, from where the markets might be because you could just, you know, touch those markets without, you know, over fiber optic cables in nanoseconds so I think this now has changed across the board, also for U.S. entrepreneurs. That, that What an entrepreneur looks like today is very different than what they looked like 15 years ago, everywhere. But I think it happens to play to the strength of both Israelis and European companies uh, who are historically more product-centric in their approach to businesses.
2: If you had a tip for uh, starting a VC, what would it be? Well, I want to give my other tip first. Okay. So when you get
1: the 100 phone calls from the U.S venture guys, just remember which one to pick up the phone for, <laughs> which is Insight. That's my tip. Uh, for starting a venture capital fund? Yeah. You know, it's its, it's, it's never been easier on the one hand. I think it's, it's you know, there's a lot of money for a smaller fund or copy sort of stories of smaller funds. I think you just need to know why you're doing things because, you know, for me... And I've had a, we've had like five or six partners or junior professionals leave to start their own funds. So I've kind of helped some and kind of watched others from afar. Most have been reasonably successful. I um, think you just want to make sure you do it for the right reasons.
0: Going back to our question on uh, titles, it's a really good point. Do you yeah. just want to do it to become the GP, or well,
1: some people want to do it because they want to create their own. Their own narrative, like, here's my startup story, right? And I did it. And that's one reason to do it. It wasn't my reason. Others want to do it because they think they'll make more money, and they're like, you know, Jeff's got the pie, and he's not sharing it enough with me. And then others want to do it because there's something that they see in the market that they just don't see being met. uh, In your fund today, yeah. In our funds, or we frustrate them by not being able to do the deals that they actually want to do because they've kind of moved to a different part of the market. You know,
2: I've met a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, past inside, uh, uh, like people that worked at inside, and like every fund almost that we've talked to had someone that worked at inside. Yeah, and I I always heard the the contrary that uh, they they left and then they they never got the liberty that they got in inside to do deals and like you know you let them loose and do whatever they want. Yeah, that's so. why the
1: grass looks greener, but it's not always. And even when you have your own fund you'd be shocked at how constrained you are by what deals you could do, because at the end you're going to be more risk averse uh, starting your own fund, right? You're not going to take flyers. It's pretty scary when you're trying to set it up. You also want to realize how long it takes till you get, because you talked earlier about the payday being pretty far out there for some of these funds. It's 10 years out from the first fund, but you know, insight fund one, fund two, I did make some money on that eventually, but ultimately it really set me up for, Fund 10. Right. right. And that's a 25 year journey. So I have friends of mine who've, you know, are pushing 60 and they're like, oh, I'm going to go start a venture fund. I'm like, really? Like, this is a 20 year
0: commitment.
1: Commitment. Like, who do you really want to put yourself out there for the next 20 years? And you make commitments to entrepreneurs that you have to stick with for 10 years and LPs that you might have to stick with for 20 years. And by the way, the big payday isn't until the third or fourth or fifth fund. So I think you have to at least know where you are in your career making that happen Um, and then uh, it's conceivable what the the world will look harder I think for for smaller funds over time Um, there's obviously advantages you could be more nimble you could be more focused aggressive but the flip side is we're doing everything we can at insight to make their lives tougher that's just like what you do with your competitors I do with mine right so I want to invest and continue to invest in my business To make it more and more – what I want to see is that my entrepreneurs, when you look at us, you finally don't hear the same story that you hear from 20
2: other people. You're like, oh, wow. Those guys really are doing something different. So you're going to go down the funnel, like uh, to smaller and smaller We've kind of done that already. Yeah,
0: they're kind of doing it. We've kind
1: of done that. But now – but you still – when I still present to an entrepreneur how we can help them, to your earlier point, there's still a lot of noise around that message. And it's my goal over the next five years to make that message – Easier and clearer and and more obvious. And some of it happens just like we had a situation recently, which I think we'll end up winning this deal, and it's a pretty competitive deal, where it turned out the VP of marketing used to work for another inside company. And they're like, you guys, you know, tells the CEOs, like, you have no idea. Like, this is real. This is not like a lot of arm-waving about how they're going to help you. Like, they really changed the trajectory of our business by helping introduce us to these five big customers. And I think it had a huge influence on the CEO's view of us so the more we do it you know the more there'll be someone other, to talk to other and, employees yeah. who've gotten touched by you know how we've helped our companies and that'll help but i think you know we're, we're working every day to to kind of create that story
0: thank you jeff so much for being thanks with us today Thanks for your um,
1: time and thanks for putting this together my first podcast ever wow, wow. very nervous what an an honor. Honor.
0: <laughs> we couldn't tell
1: it c- could be my last oh!
0: Startup up for startup for startup Oh oh